This is Pain Reframed. Welcome back to another edition of Pain Reframed. We're truly living in challenging times, and at these times, it's always good to bring in some history, and particularly some history of of medicine. So today, we are just honored to bring one of my dear friends and colleagues, Dr. Britt Smith from Grand Junction out on the western slope of Colorado. Britt is just a tremendous individual who has spent his life studying history and the humanities and bringing that mindset into the care of his patients, but really also into the care of our society and the care of how we actually deliver the appropriate type of treatment, particularly in the area of low back pain. So I am just super excited to have Dr. Britt Smith on the show. And with no further ado, let's get started. Well, it's so exciting to have you on the show today, Britt. But before we begin, I think we need to give the listeners a little bit about you. So do you mind just telling us where you're at? Yeah. Hey, Tim, we live in Grand Junction, Colorado. We have a small but thriving clinic, sort of physical therapy. And we moved here 25 years ago from Berkeley, California. Well, Britt, as I like to tell all my friends that know me, I said, how do you describe Britt Smith? And I say, I describe Britt Smith as a philosopher in physical therapy clothes. And I think (laughs) that remains truly accurate. So we're going to jump right in here, Britt, because you have a fascinating bit of research you've been doing on really looking at low back pain through time, but in particular, the case of John F. Kennedy. And I think this current time of where health and politics and life intermix, there's never a better time for stories like this. So would you mind just jumping right in and tell me how you got curious about the case of John F. Kennedy and his back pain? I read a book about five years ago by Nasir Gami, I hope I pronounced his name right, who's a psychiatrist at Tufts, I believe, in Boston. And it's called A First-Rate Madness, Uncovering the Links Between Leadership and Mental Illness. Gummy's thesis is that great leaders have afflictions of mental illness, as we all have various elements. His particular take on Kennedy is looking at two phases of his presidency. His decision-making appears to not be at the early part of his presidency. And then really the high point of his presidency was his uh, staring down the Russians in the Cuban Missile Crisis. And he attributes it, and several authors actually make similar comments about this binary aspect of his presidency. In his particular case, he's talking about the effects of medications on psychiatric or psychological decision-making, etc. But then Robert Dalek came out with his book, Kennedy, An Unfinished Life, and he goes into great detail about Kennedy, particularly his history of back pain, chronic back pain. And it's all part of the same narrative. So I can imagine, Britt, that the story, given that he was the leader of the free world, that he probably had just exceptional back pain care. Is that true? I would classify it because he was from an elite political family. His father had been the ambassador to England during the Second World War. They were very well healed, as we know the Kennedys are, and well connected. That was probably the beginning of the downfall of his physical well-being. He had access to care that most people didn't have access to. 
that access led him right down the pathway of early surgical intervention at the age of 21 and continual back problems for the rest of his life. Can you walk us through then his initial back pain episodes and what started this trajectory of his chronic back pain? Kennedy had history of childhood illness. He had developed back pain while playing football at Harvard. There are a couple different incidences explained in his history that he's given to physicians through the years. Unfortunately, because he was of the well-heeled Kennedy family, he had access to very high-level orthopedic clinics in the United States, the Leahy Clinic in Boston, Mayo Clinic, for instance. He ended up in the hands of surgeons very early in his life, and that continued to be a problem for him. Something we've talked about on the podcast over and over again, that oftentimes it is the access to these services that are the root of the problem, and and oftentimes more seems to be worse. Do we have a good idea of his presenting signs and symptoms early on? I mean, were we dealing with anything neurological, or was it just good old-fashioned back pain that was limiting his his function and maybe his ability to enjoy his life? During the time that he was attempting to enlist in the Navy, before the Second World War broke out, he had been evaluated at the Lay Clinic in Boston. They were already talking about doing a lumbar fusion on him. He ended up in the hands, and so that was, he was about 21, 22 at that point. He didn't have surgery at that time. He was evaluated by uh, physicians and actually failed his physical examination to get into the Navy, and Dad pulled the strings and got him into the Navy. And largely it was his back problem was keeping him out of the Navy. He enrolled, and then he went on to being injured in that famous PT-109, the patrol torpedo boat that he was the commander of, was in August of 1943. It was cut in half, was rammed by a Japanese destroyer. He survived, and he actually saved men. He pulled men out, swam three miles to an island, pulling a wounded sailor. But when he returned, he was having recurrent back pain. And that's when he ended up being evaluated. Two different Navy neurosurgeons evaluated him. Contrary to what the Leahy Clinic was saying, they found no evidence for neurological problems or anything that was really suggestive of a disc pathology. I think it's worthy of note that prior of this trauma on the boat, prior of that, he was evaluated. I mean, a young, sounds like a pretty healthy young man, playing yep. collegiate football, looking yep. to go into the Navy. And the idea was brought up to possibly do a lumbar fusion for back pain. I think that that, that leap should be unpacked a bit because it seems like that's a, a tremendously heavy-handed approach to what appeared to be a non-neurologically involved problem. And this was coming from the best care that somebody in this country could access. I think it's fascinating. Yeah, he actually had the surgery in June of 1944 while he was still in the Navy. His family pulled him out of service for a little bit and took him into the New England Baptist Hospital. James Poppin was the neurosurgeon at the Leahy Clinic who did, and he called it this, an exploratory L45 laminotomy with an L5-S1 discectomy. <laughs> they did what were, was called an air myelogram. Tim and I are old enough to remember myelograms. <laughs> and uh, 
the air myelogram was a pretty lame diagnostic tool. And actually, there was uh, no definitive disc protrusion on the air myelogram. So the surgeon went ahead and did all the exploratory of his back and did uh, disc removal L5-S1. And subsequent radiographs show that within a year, his disc had deteriorated. They pretty much mm. speeded up the process. At the Leahy Clinic, they were talking about fusion before. They thought he had a sacroiliac problem, lumbosacrosacroiliac. So it's interesting, yeah. So here he is on active duty. The medical team is advising against any invasive type of care for his back pain. And because of his status, his family is able to pull him out and send higher levels of care. I mean, there's so many parallels to professional sports, to many. Well, frankly, this is still happening today. But can we get into the 50s now? He gets discharged yeah. from the military. Yeah, he discharged, and then he ran for the House of Representatives, I believe, in 46. He ran for the House and was elected to the House. And he was, uh, during the campaign season, he was having fairly severe back pain and et cetera. I'll just pause for a second and just say he had a number of medical problems that came up much later in his presidency, confounding his care at times. But anyway, he gets elected to the House. Then eventually, in 1952, he runs for and is elected to the Senate. By 1954, he was using crutches almost exclusively to walk around because of his severe back pain. There's an interesting quote. He said after that first surgery, he wrote to a girlfriend at the time. He said, I think the doc should have read just one more book before picking up the saw. Oh, man. Oh, man. Yeah. So by this point, he has left leg pain. So he didn't have leg pain before the surgery. He had severe spasms, <laughs> et cetera. So there we are. He's in the Senate. He's using crutches. And finally, in 54, he's admitted to the Hospital of Special Surgeries in New York City. And the Dr. Wilson, Philip Wilson, performed an instrumented lumbar fusion using a Wilson plate, which he had invented, small conflict of interest. Uh, <laughs> he really did basically didn't get discharged. They transferred him to Palm Beach, Florida, so he could be with his family. He mm. developed a staph infection of his wound by February of 55. So within two, three months of his fusion surgery, and they brought him back to the hospital, special surgeries, and they removed his hardware. So mm. that's his third surgery at that point. This and is where Janet Trevell comes into the story. Before we get to Janet, what point do they realize that he also has Addison's disease, which oh, clearly... Before the fusion, and, and actually that was uh, part of the reason that surgeons, some of them were hedging on it because the Addison's disease. And actually later there was a case series published about a year or two later. John F. Kennedy was case number three. And it was a case series of doing surgery on persons with Addison's disease with adrenal cortex insufficiency and the risk of infection, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, wow. exactly. Healing problem, bone healing, et cetera. Yeah. 
So we must get to the heart of this story. I think this will challenge a lot of us in how we view some names in the, the musculoskeletal profession. So can you fast forward to the point where I believe JFK gets some injections by at least a name that most of us might be familiar with? Yeah, Jenna Travell steps in during this period, and I believe it was at the hospital special surgery in 55, she started doing local anesthetic injection. She deemed his problem was mostly myofascial pain and gave him relief and started him on a rehab program. She did a lot of really nice things for him. The rocking chair is probably the most famous part of the story is during his presidency, she introduced a rocking chair and he found that continual motion gave him some comfort. And it also took him away from having to stand and talk with people. He'd sit down and rock back and forth in his chair. She started the course of continual intermittent episodes of doing uh, trigger point injections with uh, procaine, which is uh, a Novocaine or cocaine uh, derivative. Oh, she also put a heel lift in his shoe. She did a good physical examination of him at this point. And eventually, as he came into the presidency, she became the first woman physician to the president of the United States. As this story goes on, Kennedy has been like president. He is in the office and he's clearly continuing to suffer from back pain. What are some of the clues or some of the interesting things you found out during this time? He continued to have back pain. It plagued him particularly during his first two years in office. And Janet Travell literally gave him thousands of procaine injections during the first couple of years of his presidency. There's a statement somewhere that I believe the Vienna conference, perhaps, with Khrushchev, she gave him eight injections before the meeting on his back <laughs> and then send him in the meeting. So she's, she's basically anesthetizing his back before he goes into meetings and that sort of thing. She gave an oral history that you can get online about her care and her time. And she wrote a book about her time in the White House and this sort of thing. And she did not like the use of the word drugs because she believed everything she was giving him were offsetting physiologic, you know, like adrenal cortical insufficiency, et cetera. He was on testosterone injections, probably was driving a lot of his foggy thinking as well as his libido problem that is pretty well known in public now. <laughs> and during this time, and it's interesting, is that he clandestinely started to see a doctor in New York named Max uh, Jacobson, or was known at the time as Dr. Feelgood, who was sort of the doctor to the celebrities. Jacobson was injecting methamphetamines mixed with hormones, with bone marrow, et cetera, in him. At the same time, he was taking, as they knew it, in the White House, he was on steroids for his Addison's disease, painkillers for his back, antispasmodics because he had colitis, antibiotics for uh, repeated urinary tract infections, which probably were related to sexually transmitted diseases at different times. He was on antihistamines. He had a long history of allergies and occasionally was put on antipsychotic mood drugs, largely at his wife's request. <laughs> he became a bit of a drug abuser, if you will. 
Max Jacobson was a German immigrant who came to New York in the late 30s. He probably slid down quite a bit. And his White House physicians didn't know he was seeing Jacobson at the time. I had a little thing here I was just digging up on his concoction. He was injecting methamphetamines, animal hormones, bone marrow, enzymes, human placenta particles, painkillers, steroids, and what he called multivitamins. It was known as the miracle tissue regenerator. And I might add that Jacobson lost his medical license in 1975. <laughs> wow. It's funny. You, you think about terms, you know, we say became a drug abuser, but it really sounds like he was kind of abused by drugs. As we think about how the care precipitated and, and what he was exposed to. Isn't this our opioid crisis writ small? Mm -hmm. There came a moment, a crisis finally in the White House, that they brought in a physician named George Berkeley. He's a rear admiral. George Berkeley came in as a consultation, and he and Robert Kennedy, who was the attorney general at the time, Berkeley basically removed Janet Travell from his medical care. She did mm. continue to give him injections intermittently, and they banished Jacobson. They found out about this, and they got him out of there. Jacobson did show up at certain meetings, like in Europe, at different times, because Kennedy kept clandestinely seeking his care at times. So George Berkeley, in my mind, is an unsung hero. And I don't want to belittle what Janet Travell did. She helped him through several crises and et cetera. But there was a huge coup d'etat, as one of the authors has termed it, a medical coup d'etat in the, in the White House at the time. Gami, for instance, the psychiatrist who wrote the book about leadership and mental illness, really attributes the clearing of Kennedy's decision-making and then actually the improvement of his overall back condition and overall health uh, greatly improved after as Berkeley began to take over care. And the central thing he did was he brought in another orthopedic surgeon named Hans Kraus. I just came across last night about Hans Kraus. It's called, I think, The Man Who Cured John F. Kennedy, back condition or something like that. Kraus was an orthopedic surgeon from Austria who was an avid rock climber, mountain climber, was actually a world-renowned rock climber. He introduced a really rigorous regimen of physical therapy activity with Kennedy, as well as changing medications, backing off. And Krauss was a trigger point guy also and was a colleague that was familiar with Janet Travell. I think they were friends, actually. And Travell was basically relegated to treating the first family, the Jackie and the kids, and Krauss took over. I'd love to put a nice bow on this and say something like 70 years ago, 80 years ago, if you were well off and you had good means and you had basic mechanical spastic back pain with no neurological effects, you were often encountered with medical specialists who wanted to do fusions and wanted to do experimental surgeries and you wound up on really addictive medication and eventually antipsychotics and the issue yep. was rehab was never really presented early on in the course of care when at the end of the course it was able to make great effects but imagine had it preceded it it'd be wonderful to say yeah but that was 70 years ago we've come so far <laughs> but yep. i think unfortunately most of our listeners will appreciate that the story you told 
sounds shockingly similar to what we're doing in 2020. Absolutely. At the end of reading all of this, the really interesting paper was there's a paper by Pinals and Hassan in 2013. It's uh, titled Reconceptualizing JFK's Chronic Low Back Pain. And they make exactly your point. I'm going to just read what it says because it's exactly what you just said, Jeff. Regardless of major advances in our understanding of pain processing, they basically present the case that he had central sensitization early in his life. And they give some indication to childhood childhood pain continued into his adulthood, et cetera, which are, are common features of people with central sensitization. But regardless of the major advances in our understanding of pain and processing and central nervous system dysfunction more broadly, John F. Kennedy today might still be subjected to peripherally directed therapies such as back surgery and or large doses of opioid medications, although there is scant evidence that either brings lasting relief. Isn't that interesting? (laughs) That summarizes it very well, Brett. We think we have come so far, but we're still fighting the same battles, if you will, in the management of back pain. As we come to a close, as you have sent us a lot of information on that, and it is clear that, I mean, people were seeing things, musculoskeletal drivers of just poor conditioning of his body. At the day, there were some protocols that I would say were appropriate even today. And actually that evidence we have more of. Loving history and you love history and I love history. You look at someone like Hans Krauss, he was on the President's Council for Physical Fitness with Eisenhower's administration. He was one of the, the central panelists. He and Bonnie Pruden, the physical exercise guru, were part of that council. The reason they were brought together was that it was shown that American youth were deconditioned, this is starting to sound just like where we are now, uh, increased body fat, et cetera, et cetera. And Eisenhower's administration wanted to address increasing physical activity in children. Krauss's background, being Austrian and having lived in the pre-World War II Austria, it really kind of worked against him because there were opponents who said that he was Hitlerizing American youth. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Which is fascinating, too, in our current political milieu. <laughs> well, Britt, it's always fascinating to talk to you. We could go on and on here. I do think you have pulled together one of the interesting historical characters in, from a medical perspective, and I really appreciate you taking the time. And I look forward to having you on a series on some of these just crazy things in medical history. So thanks so much for taking the time. And do you want to leave the listeners with one final thought? One thought would be the idea that Barbara Tuchman, the historian, titled her book on the plague years as a distant mirror. And her point was that looking back in history, we often see a reflection of where we are now by going back and looking at it. It's very important. Wow. Given the day we're recording this is March 20th, 2020. I don't think we can top that, Britt. So thanks for leaving us with that. And I wish you an exceptionally awesome day. All right, buddy. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Jeff. Thanks, Tim. You guys take care.
Well, what a pleasure to be able to sit and chat with Britt Smith, somebody who has just tremendous historical perspective on the care of all musculoskeletal pain, but back pain in particular. I hope that the parallels were not lost on anybody between what it looked like if you had means and back pain in the 20s or 30s and what it looks like if you have means and back pain here in 2020. We wish the story sounded more different. Unfortunately, there's still a lot of work to be done to get things that are low risk, that are high value on the front end, make those accessible, make those fashionable, and make those the predetermined and accepted course. Lots of work to be done, but lots of voices yelling the message. Thanks, everybody, for being here. As Tim said in the intro, challenging times, but banding together is more important than ever. So make sure to check out all of our resources. Evidenceinmotion.com is where you can find all the courses. Remember that a line conference is sneaking up. It's going to be the end of August. So many great speakers are going to be there bringing in a multidisciplinary platform. So can't wait to be a part of that and, and watch physical therapy and the rehab sciences move forward. So everybody have an awesome day. We'll see you next time on the next episode of Pain Refrain. 